Well, okay. Good morning. Good morning, second service. My name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor if you're visiting. And we are right in the middle of our series, Judges, our study in the book of Judges. When I say right in the middle, I mean four of seven weeks. So that's right in the middle today. And we are in the middle of an intense series. Seriously, God's word does not disappoint. I've heard people say things before like, man, Bible's boring. Well, one reason people would think that is if they don't read it. Because when you read the Bible and when you go through Judges, it's like, man, this is better than Hollywood. And you realize you're boring. The Bible's not boring. We're in the book of Judges, and we're all the way to chapter 11 today. And I'm going to encourage you to strap on your seatbelts because it gets even more intense. We come to, into and through chapter 11, and we come to a new judge. And I am confident today that I'm going to preach the best message, the best sermon that most of y'all have ever heard about Jephthah the Gileadite. Okay, it's high aspirations here. But again, Judges, one of the things that the book of Judges can do is it can tend to paint a sad picture about you and me, or rather reveal the sad picture of how we live our lives, the things that we think. It exposes some of our excuses, some of the the, the darker ends of our own sin that could cover us up. And my prayer today is that is it, that's just what it would do in your life, that as we read God's word, God's word reads us and restores us definitively and objectively. Specifically, Judges shows that the further away we get from God and from sharing his viewpoint, the more self-confident and encouraged we can tend to be in doing evil things. And that's not good. As I say, that's sad. But as much as the book of Judges is sad, there's something more that the book of Judges is. Because Though history shows the, 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 the sinful things of my life and yours and everyone else's, that's the bad part of history. The greater part of history is God's mercy nonetheless. That his, his grace abounds in the worst of human sin. Story of your life, story of my life, story of judges. Judges shows us, I've, I've heard one guy say, that God in his sovereignty and his control and his, his good uh, benevolence over humanity... Judges shows us that God can write straight with crooked pencils, okay? That's the title of my, uh, my biography right there. God writes straight with crooked pencils. God is good. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me as we get into Judges 11, starting with the last few verses of Judges 10. We stand to honor God's word. I'm going to start with Judges 10, verse 17, and we'll go all the way through 11, 11. You ready for this? Anyone? Yeah. All right, this guy's ready. Here we go. Verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms. They encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together. And they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of 
another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out to be with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me when you drove me out of my father's house? Why then have you now come to me in your time of distress? And the elders of of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, well, that's why we brought you here now. That you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, then I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be the witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word and help us to see and restore our vision to see things, even hard things in our own lives through your perspective. No, long, no longer uh, just conform to the thinking of our generation but bringing redemption to our generation as you transform our minds and restore us. Amen. Now, as we consider this man, Jephthah, and consider his place in history, his place in the digression of the book of Judges, I pray that God would help you to consider the digression of our culture Consider the difficult parts of your life and that you would dare to be so brave as to allow God to draw the correlation between his word and your life. Because there is a correlation, but we have to dare to allow God to show us. And my one point as I go through, first of all, the co- I'm going to talk about the cultural context that Jephthah was born into. I'm going to talk about the formative curses, secondly, about his life. And finally, I'm going to talk about the end of chapter 11, some of the things he chose to do. In all of these three basic things, there's one point that I want to make that relates to us. And that is this. Like Jephthah, we are more affected by our culture than we think. Like Jephthah, we're more affected by our culture than we think. Now, that's a very simple point, but admitting to it and seeing the effects of it, and fessing up to how we contribute to the painful parts of our culture is a different matter. But I believe that if we're going to bring redemption to our culture, we have to be able to see it. God doesn't want us to be affected by our culture. He wants us to affect love and power and redemption in our culture. And for that, for that, we actually have to be affected by something greater than our culture. Amen? To be countercultural and to affect our culture with something transcendent. We can't simply be affected by our culture. We have to be effective within culture. And that requires God's word to define us more than our culture. Now, I've said this, that you and me, like Jephthah, were affected 
by our culture more than by God's word, more than we're willing to admit specifically, and it shouldn't be this way. And I'll tell you right now, if you know Jesus and you grow in the knowing of him, it does not have to be that way. In fact, as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, he gives this command that he presumes, based on giving the command, that we're able to walk out because of what God has done in Jesus. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So if you find yourself conformed, if, if you can relate all too painfully clearly to Jephthah's story, as the Bible reads you, as you're reading the Bible, if you, like me, can see that this assertion is true, that you're affected by culture so much more, rather than being transformed and not being uh, falling prey to the patterns of our culture, if you can painfully relate to Jephthah, then my prayer is that today you wouldn't simply be condemned in that place. Like, oh, that's me too. Dang. God hates me. No, no, no. Don't be condemned. I pray that you would admit it, submit it, and let Jesus change it. In fact, say that after me. Say, say admit it. Admit it. Come on, say it with some, some, some power. Admit it. Admit it. Submit it. Submit it. Watch Jesus change it. See, if I'm going to preach good, I need your preaching good to help me. Appreciate you guys. Second service, preaching power. See, I'm going to go through this and show you some of the digression of Jephthah's life. First, I want to paint a picture of the cultural context he was in. I want you to see, based on where Jephthah was born into, the cultural digression by the time we get to Judges chapter 10 and into 11. The place that he was in. And I think... You and I, in our culture, based on our digression, we can make excuses that are more in light of our culture than they are of the way things should be by God's word. I grew up so proud of myself for being a little better than the worst of the guys on my baseball team. And man, those dudes on my baseball team were some corrupt dudes. They made me feel real good about myself. But God called us to live not in light of our culture, but to bring redemption to our culture. Jephthah, the people of Israel, had been so engulfed in their culture that they forgot why God placed them there. It says so many times through the first 10 chapters, something like they forgot God and they worshipped the other gods, the pagan gods. I heard one commentary, it was really helpful when it, when it says, he says, when, when it says that the Israelites forgot God, it doesn't literally mean that they forgot God. It's that they stopped acting on what they knew about God. This is really important. They didn't forget God entirely. It wasn't that, that they was, he was completely out of their mental recollection. It's just that their lifestyles were no longer showing that they knew anything about him. And that's so much like your life and mine, Right? If you went to Israel and you, you saw even in the worst of times here, if you saw these people and, and you went up to them and says, do, do you know who God, Elohim, Yahweh is? They'd probably say something like, of course, yeah, that's the God. That's, that's the best God right there. He's the one who delivered our, our ancestors from, from slavery in Egypt. He's good. Yeah, we're, in fact, we're, we're, we're Jews. We're, we're, we're Israelites. We're, we're, that's the greatest lineage that we could have. They'd probably have bumper stickers about it. 
they didn't forget God necessarily. They just added him to the synchronism of all the other things that they had going on in their lives. They stopped acting on it. Now, in our nation today, I've seen a recent Barna survey that somewhere around 90% of Americans believe in God. They believe that God exists. Now, if you're like me, you might look around and be like, man, that just doesn't correlate to what I'm seeing in culture, right? That's clear, right? Now, my hope is I, I, I'm, I love those 10%, the folks that don't believe in God, but they know they don't believe in God, man. That's, that's probably closer. In fact, I pray that a setting like this or your growth group or your home is a safe place for the people who don't believe in God and know they don't believe in God. But what about the people who don't believe in God and don't know that they don't believe in God? What about the people who believe in God but that have in so many ways stopped acting on what they know or think they believe about God? In this room, I'm going to go and say, I would just guess that pretty much all of us believe in God. But if you're like me, in so many ways, whether it's financial pressures, relationship anxieties, or even just trivial distractions like from rectangles like this, you struggle to act day in and day out on what you believe or claim to believe about God. What's your hope there? Today, I pray that God would be so gracious to you as to grant you that painful moment of not just generally saying, oh, you're a sinner, but sticking his finger on your sin and being, allowing you this sanctified discomfort of saying, this is where I'm so much more like my culture, like my generation. This is where my distraction, my relational anxieties are allowing me to make excuses that only contribute to death and set my kids up for a digression like Jephthah. I pray that God would allow you sanctified discomfort for the sake of your future and for your kids to show you you don't have to be controlled by this pattern. You can be so much better than just the same as everyone else. I pray that God would show us that. The people of Israel would often turn to God in, in, in days where... the. God would send nations against them. They would turn to God. But if you look at these first 10 chapters, they were turning to God, but not necessarily turning away from the other false gods, the things that they placed their hope in. What about the things that we place our hope in, that we rely on, the things that we think are going to solve our problems, the things that we think will cure our anxieties? If God would just grant us the grace to not only turn to him, but to turn away from all the other things we could place our hope in. I do lots of weddings, and when I do a wedding, there is the vows that I do, but there's also the vow of forsaking all others. I keep myself only for you. I pray that we could see the things that are in our life that we're patterning our lives with, that we're in bed with of sorts, that God is granting us the rights to see and forsake so that we can turn to him, to be strengthened in him. Amen? Instead of just mere behavioral modifications like Israel fell prey to, there was, there was persecution, there was judgment, there was a turning to God technically, but we still have our insurance. We still have these other gods just in case. Little backupsies, right? I pray that we, we could forsake, that we could surrender, we could have true and lasting life in God 
And we could see that Jesus doesn't just want to be a part of your life. Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He wants to be the person who brings you life, who brings you invigoration, the person who protects you when you can't protect yourself, that relationship, that job can't protect you. He is your protector, the one who protects you from danger, and the one who makes you dangerous to the enemy. He is life. And it would take someone that's very unusual to live that out, to act on that sort of knowledge. God's wanting unusual people, not just a culture that digresses and out of that comes Jephthah's. Now, one encouraging thing is Jephthah, though his culture digressed, our hope can be if we place our faith in God, we don't have to be a product of our culture's digression. We can place our faith in God. So no matter if today is your last day, we can lean on the mercy of God and it can be said of us, they had faith. That's what's cool. I read in, in Hebrews, when it talks of Jephthah, it talks of a, in, in, in Hebrews, it talks of this, the only thing it mentions of him is he had faith. And what's great about that is I don't see that faith anywhere in Judges here. I see a cultural digression. So my encouragement to you is this, no matter where you are in your culture, Maybe you'll see today you're a product of the culture around you and it hurts. And maybe God's showing you that's why you're, you constantly go through this and that. Well, if you place your faith and your trust in, in God, who can actually be leaned on, there is pure and lasting hope for change today. Now, specifically as it got to Judges chapter 11, before Judges chapter 11, I want to read chapter 17 again. It says that, that Israel, the whole nation, comes together against the Ammonites. In verse 18, this is interesting, it says, the people, the leaders of Gilead, so one smaller clan in a smaller tribe of Israel, they said to one another, who is the man who will begin a fight against us? Now, we are meant to understand some literary patterns here. The first readers of this would see how this phrase is very similar but painfully different to the very first verse of the book of Judges. So let's go to the first book. You can keep your finger in in Judges 10. But Judges 1.1 says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us, uh, first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. Now I want to put these two verses next to each other. There's four main things about this that are tragically different. First of all, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it's talking of the whole nation of Israel. But by the time you get down to chapter 10, it's just talking about one small clan. You see, because of sin and a digression of, of furthering, being furthered from the presence of God, there was splintering and the national unity was completely lost. There was polarization. It was worse than the Democrats versus the Republicans. I don't know how. I can't imagine how it's worse. But it was worse It just said one of the leaders of this small clan wanted to start a fight. So number one, the difference from chapter one and chapter 10 is that there was no national unity. The next thing is is who did they inquire? Chapter one, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Now chapter 10, the leaders of Gilead said to one another. The third thing that's different about this is In chapter 1, they were contending against all the Canaanites versus in chapter 10, they were only concerned about their own regional border. 
protecting Gilead. It's kind of like, man, our nation's going to hell. Let's just worry about Texas. No, we're supposed to worry about humanity if we know Jesus. We're supposed to have greater borders than that. I love Texas, don't get me wrong. But there's something about a greater concern when we're connected to God. And they had lost that here. The final thing is this, is they had no plan in chapter 10 to win a fight. They just wanted to start it. Chapter one, who will go with us to fight against the Canaanites? Context from the several chapters around it. They wanted to actually win. They wanted to be in the land and at least have God's plan restored unto them to take dominion over the land. But chapter 10, man, things have digressed so much. They're just like, man, who's going to pick a fight for us? It says, who will begin the fight against the Ammonites? So in 10 chapters, maybe a few generations of people, you have a people that have been so disenfranchised, so, so disillusioned, that no longer is there any viewpoint of, why am I here? Why has God sent me here? Why do I live here? What, who am I contending against? Who are our enemies? Who are our allies? All of that stuff was so fuzzy that they were just looking for anything. They didn't really know what winning was anymore. They just wanted any sort of scoundrel to rise up and fight for them. Anyone who could just pick a fight. Now, with this, I have to mention and remind you that the book of Judges was written before the 2016 presidential primaries. I have to mention that. Because look, this cultural digression that leads to, look, I don't know why we're here as a nation. I don't know what God's calling us to do, but I don't like it. So let's get someone to start us a fight. That feels good. That makes good tweets. You see, God's word relates to you, your life, your culture, more than you're often willing and I'm often willing to and comfortable to deal with. Instead of being united together to seek God's kingdom, his redemption, his mercy, the nation of Israel, the culture, they were more conformed, conformed to the culture and contending with themselves. And thus there was no clear paradigm for what winning was, what following God was. And there was definitely no paradigm for healthy leadership. And thus enter, enters Jephthah. And I'll just say this. If you're conformed to the pattern of your culture, you're useless to bring redemption within it. God wants you to be beyond the insecurities of your culture, to not worry about the same things that the Republicans and the Democrats worry about. We have greater concerns and greater power. And I'm preaching pretty good right now. I'm going to affirm myself. I need to preach that to myself. We have greater concerns and greater power. This is the culture that Jephthah was grown into, this desperation, this vacuum that allowed for any sort of leader to rise up. Now, check out what kind of leader it was. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a, a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was his father, and his brothers didn't like him. They, they started treating him wrongly. Verse 3, it says that he, he is driven away, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah. Irony, the irony is, is that these are, this is the type of dude... This, essentially this mob boss, the way they, they, they were out in the land of Tob, this is the person chosen in this culture to lead Gilead and essentially Israel at the time. 
Now, besides his culture, Jephthah had a few formative things about his own character and personality and definition and identity, lies that he believed that contributed to a worse state of who he was. There were some formative lies. He, he believed he was a worthless person. I'm just the son of a prostitute. He had forgotten what was clear in so many ways. In, in Genesis, he could have read of Hagar, of Tamar, of Rahab, these women of disrepute that God used as trophies of grace in his story. He could have known that you don't have to come from, from a good lineage for God to use you for something beautiful. He could have known that God can take broken pieces and use in a purified way. And you know what? You and I both need to know that. I'm guessing that the vast majority of the people in this room don't come from perfect stock in spiritual perfection. You're like me. You want God to use you in your strengths, but more so in your weaknesses for redemption, to be a trophy of his grace. And you, like Jephthah, need to know that you're precious, even in those areas that you seem and tend to want to hide under. The lies that you believe. Jephthah started to believe lies about himself that didn't align with God's word. He believed definitions about himself and his worthlessness that God wasn't speaking over him. Formative lies that came from his culture and the lies of his brothers. Now, this is so much like me. I grew up uh, learning things about me, my personhood, my identity, my sexuality that came from my culture, not from I am a I'm made in the image of God and I'm more than, than just my animalistic desires would tell me I am. My elementary school sex education didn't tell me that. In fact, my family lineage didn't tell me that. I had some formative curses about me. My, my lineage, my grandpa believed lies about himself that essentially led to his inability to, to lead my dad in a place where he could be faithful to his own family. My dad essentially grew up, in essence, a, an orphan. And he felt like his only refuge for him was to, to, to seek professional baseball to be his answer. And when my dad was playing professional baseball, he vowed to himself he would be different than his dad. But the problem is, is the same formative curses were upon him and ravaged our family. And so me and my brothers grew up with the same sort of instability and we vowed we're going to be faithful to our wives and families when we grow up. But me, like my brothers, growing up, I was living out the same impurity. And if it weren't for Jesus, that would take me, restore me, redefine me. And he's still restoring me, by the way. Just ask my wife. Still work to do. If it weren't for that moment, I would have passed the same formative curses on to my kids says that, verse 3, worthless fellows collected around Jephthah. You know, I think Jephthah thought he was worthless. And that's why worthless fellows gathered around him, collected around him. You know, who you hang out with says something about what you think about yourself. Because I believe that you attract people that are a projection of what you think about yourself in so many ways. Jephthah was hanging around these men. They would go around and rob people. And they were essentially... Well, like I said, a mob boss, essentially. And this was the person who was called into leadership. Stop for a minute and 
think about what formative lies would cause you to believe things about yourself that the Bible doesn't say. What, what are things, as you go from being born into this culture and having an opportunity in this moment of time to be stopped by God, and instead of just being a product of your culture, to be stopped by God's word and redefined to where you can, in a moment, be transformed by God to not, being, not simply being a product of culture, but being a redemptive element within culture, what are formative lies you have to come out of agreement with about yourself in order for that to happen? What are things you believe about your body, about your personality, about your money, about God's provision, about your sexuality that limit you and define you as less than what God says about you? You know what? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are transcendently beautiful. And men, you need to receive this too. You're transcendently beautiful. God has made you to produce and reproduce a beauty that cannot be explained or limited sociologically, psychologically. You're fearfully and wonderfully made is what God's word says of you. To believe that, what do you have to disbelieve? What lesser lies and formative curses do you need to come out of agreement with. God will redefine you and purify you based on his truth. Now because Jephthah grew up in a culture that he essentially was the best of the worst and he additionally added on to that formative curses, this would explain some of the decisions he made. I'm going to read a few verses in the end of chapter 11, starting with verse 29, that show a very sad, paint a very sad story of Jephthah. It says, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Now, I want to stop here and say, when the Bible says the spirit of the Lord is upon someone, or when the Bible talks about uh, a person being used by God, that is not a blanket endorsement of everything that person believes, says, or does, okay? So there's a, God can use wicked people to accomplish his purpose. The gifts and callings of God are without reproach. Let me ask you this. Raise your hand if, you have, if God's given you gifts. Should be all of us. Raise your, keep your hand raised if God endorses everything you do and say. Okay, my point made. So it says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. He makes a vow to make a human sacrifice of whatever walks out of his door. He thinks that God is like the other pagan gods around him that can be manipulated and that you can manipulate God and control God with lavish gifts and human sacrifice to curry favor for what you want to do. And he thinks probably that his victory would come as a result of his vow. This vow that he makes for human sacrifice, if he would have read in Deuteronomy 12, he would see that God's plan is not for human sacrifice. God hates the detestable human sacrifice. 
It says, Deuteronomy 12, 31. Jephthah makes a decision that's zealous and evil. He thinks he's being zealous for God. And then God allows for the Israelites to win in the battle against the Ammonites. Jephthah comes home thinking that God honored his vow instead of giving his nation victory despite his stupid vow. He comes and sees his home and the first person that walks out of his house is his precious virgin daughter. And by that point, he feels obligated. He decides, I don't want to change my mind. I've said this and I got to follow through with it. And he goes and tells her, look, I got to follow through with it. I got to kill you now and burn you. And she she says, okay, Father, if that's what's supposed to happen, she goes and mourns for two months the, the life, the marriage she would never have. And I want to say that verse 11 ends with an angel appearing before Jephthah and saying, don't do this. This is not my will. You can turn around. Don't go here. Don't hurt your daughter. But it doesn't. He ends up killing his daughter as some st- Silly Canaanite sacrifice, thinking he's pleasing the Lord, burning her on a human offer of human sacrifice. And God allows him to be more a product of his culture and to do stupid things that hurt others. It's a really sad ending to the Jephthah story. And, and so often, how much is that like your story and mine? Where God will allow you to do the stupid thing that you set out to do that you don't turn around from doing. And God allows the redemption to be brought through the pain of your failure. This is Jephthah's story. I want to I stop here around verse 38 and I, I just wish I would see Jephthah just, just stop and say, wait a minute. What I said, what I vowed to do, the pride that led me in to this situation doesn't have to be the pride that keeps me here. I wish he would have said, I I repent for saying that. This wasn't right. I don't need to kill my daughter. God, forgive me. I wish he would have just backed out of it, humbled himself and said I was wrong, but he didn't. It really honestly reminds me of those marital fights that I get into. Any married people here, you know what I'm talking about. I say something stupid to my wife. I mean, hypothetically, Friday, okay? Um, and, and then there's that look. I'm like, oh, crap, I think that was stupid, yes. And why is it that when I, in that moment, I could be like, you know what? I, didn't, I'm, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's the, that's the title of my, my marriage book. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Gosh, if you mean it, that'll go a long way. Free marital advice, side sermon, okay? Why can't I stop and do that? Why do I have to go on? Why is it that when I get into a situation, I am more stubborn and prideful, and it's like I get louder, more defensive. I find those things that she says that's going to offend me. When I could have just said, you know what? You said that because you were hurt, and you're hurt because of what I said. Wait a minute, stop. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But I, like Jephthah, say something stupid. I'm in a stupid situation, and my stupidity continues to multiply. 
What about you? What about those moments where you're in deep because of your own sin? It was primarily your sin that got you there. What prevents you from going to that person and saying, I'm so sorry. Can we work this out? Can you forgive me? The same pride that got him there was the pride that kept Jephthah there. You know, this big moment of conflict and triumph in his life results in the casualty of his family. Like the culture around him, he wanted to conquer with no plan with what he was conquering, who for, what victory was. No idea that God has an idea of the sanctity of his daughters. And because, because of his, his misunderstanding about God and therefore humanity, his daughter was a casualty. And I'll say this, that does not have to be us and our children. Our children don't have to be casualties of our cultural uh, digressions, our insensitivities, our insecurities. Our children can be products of redemption instead of casualties of our lack of repentance. I wish Jephthah could have seen Romans chapter 12, verse 2. The admonition, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I wish he could have seen the verse that comes right before that because he would have understood what, what he could have seen from Abraham and Isaac that went before him. The culmination that, that painted a picture of Jesus and the final sacrifice that allowed his sacrifice to not have to take the life of him, himself or any other. He could have seen that the verse right before not conforming to the pattern of this world, it says, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You need to know that if your life, like Jephthah's, is is more in line with the culture around you, and you see the digression going where it goes, it can stop there. Because of the blood of Jesus, you don't have to sacrifice the way our culture sacrifices the future of our children and the future of your life. You can know that there was a final sacrifice that was already paid by the mercies of God, meaning the fact that Jesus already was the final sacrifice. Therefore, we can be living sacrifices because he was the final sacrifice and he got up out of the grave and he is now alive. You can be alive and give of your life as a living sacrifice, a worship that even in the midst of your mess, you can present your, your mess to God and receive mercy and grace from him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you as we are. We know that you love us as we are and you're unwilling for us to stay where we are. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who, who doesn't see that they can be dead to their sin and alive with you. Maybe you have never seen it happen. I pray that you would grant that repentance now. Lord, even in the most simple of ways, your power is made perfect in human weakness. Even now, as they're praying, I pray that you would restore and renew. Even where you are, if that's you, if you're saying, God, I've never fully sacrificed my life, laid it down and become new in you. Here I am, change me. 
Lord, help us to treasure the sacrifice you made so that we can be a living sacrifice of worship. We can be culture redeemers, not hating our culture, not just complaining about it, about how it's not the way it used to be, but being here, planted here to be a means of redemption and mercy, to love and transform. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close, I want to do something a little unusual. I have homework. We ready for homework? I have in the next three months a challenge for everyone here. I'm convinced that one of the reasons, probably the most operative reason why we see a lot of immorality in our culture is because of amorality, meaning things that are trivial and just amoral. They're not, they're not good or bad. They're just distractions. Set us up to be so depleted of the weighty glory of God that we're numbed. These little rectangles. My challenge to you is that maybe you talk to your spouse on the way home. Maybe you talk to a uh, person in your growth group this week, which, by the way, at our connections table, we can help you connect more with growth groups. You have a challenge to where you have an extended period of time. I'm going to say it should be days, maybe, where you do something that fills up the tank of the things of God and you turn these little digital depleters off. That's my challenge. Fill yourself with God. Do not be drunk with wine or with iPhones, but be full of the Holy Spirit. That's my challenge to you. Can we accept that challenge? Amen? All right, let's stand to our feet and I'll dismiss us. May you go in the presence of God to know him and to make him known with power and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed.